back on air. It's time for some more unadulterated Ashes nostalgia. For those of you who like that kind of thing. This is episode 11 of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, and you are all very welcome to hear our latest tales of daring do on the sunlit uplands of England and Australia. After successfully hunting down Ross Duncan, Ken Eastwood and Tony Dell in the 1970-71 series in Australia, we have to time travel to 1977, a galaxy far, far away from the early 1970s, to find our next pair of One Ashes Jedi Knights. And what a year it was, starting with the Force for Good, there was the Centenary Test at the MCG, and ending with the Rebel Alliance of World Series Cricket. Or should that be a new hope? Next time around, we'll hear from Mick Malone of Scarborough, Western Australia. He was selected for the fifth and final test of the series at the Oval. Conditions were good. I swung the ball about quite a bit. I think I'd bowled something like 20 overs before I took a wicket. And at that point, by about the 18th or 19th over, I thought, well, I'm going to get taken off shortly. I've had a test match. I haven't got a wicket. Didn't even think about getting a run. What an experience. And uh, I did feel... I'm out of my depth here. These fellas are just too good. I'm not going to get a wicket. And all of a sudden, bang, something happens. I'll get a wicket. And then another, and then another. Greg Chappell just had confidence in me and just left me on. Every time someone nicked it, someone caught it. It was fantastic. But before we listen to Mick's take on the summer of 77, it's time to focus our attention on Graham Barlow of Middlesex. Of course, all our One Ashes test wonders have been at the mercy of the selectors and the captain, and we've heard countless tales already about how communication isn't always what it could be. And it seems not even the best are immune. Take this extract from Mike Brearley's The Art of Captaincy. I remember that we decided to leave Graham Barlow out 40 minutes before the start of the second test in 1977. The players were practising fielding at that moment, so I asked for the team not to be announced until the session had finished. Unfortunately, this instruction was ignored and Barlow's suspense was ended by the public address system. What say we get Graham out into the middle to hear his side of the story? Graham Barlow was an attacking left-handed batsman, outstanding fielder and integral part of the successful Middlesex side in the 70s and early 80s. He played 251 first-class games between 1969 and 1986, scoring 12,387 runs at an average of 35.9 with 26 centuries. He played six one-day internationals and three tests for England, including his one Ashes test at Lords in 1977. Graham, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, and really surprised to find you out in Australia. How did that come about? Um, a long story. Yeah. I left <laughs> England in 86 and moved to South Africa. I was then married to a South African and stayed in South Africa for 14 years. Then uh, marriage broke up there and I then moved to New Zealand having met my future wife in South Africa. The reason we left South Africa was because Rose was pregnant. We had Tara there and then we, then we moved. 
We spent 20 years in New Zealand. We were going to use it as a launching pad for coming to Australia, but I got involved cricket-wise with Central Districts after I'd been in New Zealand for a couple of years, and I coached them for five years, by which time we were fairly ensconced in New Zealand. So, I mean, I think I was mid-50s, late-50s maybe when I finished that. So then I went back into teaching in Whangarei, which is north of Auckland, and uh, I taught five years at Whangarei Boys High, and then went across the road to Whangarei Girls High, um, teaching English for my sins there. Bit of a change. I needed something wow. to get my brain into gear after basically a lifetime of cricket. Not that I wanted to get out of it, but you know, you need a change at some stage. And it was, they were challenges which I really enjoyed. So that brings me to here. So we've been here for 18 months. And the, the draw for us was my, my younger sister, who was in Melbourne, moved up here. And we had a couple of Christmases up here in Noosa. In terms of somewhere to, to retire, it's an absolutely lovely place. It really yeah. is. It's got everything that you, yeah, that you want. And it's basically pretty warm most of the time. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get into the cricket in a minute, but that's pretty much as soon as you finished your cricket that you left uh, England then. So you haven't really been back since then. We spent three months. I was coaching at Halebury, just outside yeah. London. It's a public school. So 98 was the last time I was, I was back in England. So it's been yeah. quite a long time. Like many of the players I've spoken to on this series, including the first one, Keith Slater and Ken Taylor, they were all-round yeah. sportsmen. They played football and cricket. They played rugby, you know, whatever it might be. In, in, in your case, it was cricket and rugby. Which sport did yeah. you prefer and how did you get into both of those sports? The cricket started when I was 13. I, I never picked up a bat until I was 13. My dad, he'd been a mechanic in Romney and then he got dermatitis. Anyway, we moved, we, we left Romney, which is right on the coast in Kent, and moved to Stockwell, which was not the best part of London at that stage. No. And we lived in a, in a tenement flat. And my dad drove a London bus for a while. Cut a long story short, he got an offer from a friend of his who ran the pool of chauffeurs at Eyelift Press. So my dad just worked in a pool. And then, again, by chance, one of the young executives that he drove around was a man named Don Ryder. They got on very well. And Don Ryder left after my dad had been there about a year. And he became the MD of the Miller Group. And so when he got the job, he said to my daddy, um, look, I want you to come with me. I want you to be my chauffeur. He said, and I want you to live in Ealing, which at that stage was... Yeah, we were in Stockwell. It was a big difference. So my dad said, well, look, we can't afford to live there. You know, it's like, he said, no, 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 don't worry. I'll get the mortgage in that. I need you to live near to me because I get up at five and I want to be at work by six. And I'm often at late nights. So he basically instigated the mortgage. I mean, my dad still had to pay, but obviously he was paying dad. So it worked out. And he really looked after my dad. My dad worked in for 20 odd years, I think. I did end up going to a London County Council boarding school in Wolverstone called Wolverstone Hall, which actually was a very good school, but I didn't enjoy being uh, away from home much. But that's where I got my first taste of cricket. Um, they had a coach named Dickie Mays who had played for Suffolk, I think, and they had a good cricket grounds and um, thatch pavilion. You know, it was yeah, really good. So that was my first taste, but that was really where I, I was taught my basic rugby. A guy named Guy Evans, you know, every time he did something wrong, he'd give you a clout around the ear. So you sort of pick things up pretty bloody quickly. <laughs> Otherwise, you know. So that was, that's the beginning of the two sports, really. When I got back to Ealing, I went to Ealing Grammar School. Don't know how I got in there. Very, very good school. I was in the lowest stream all the way through. They were a soccer school that also played cricket. And they, had, they did have a rugby team. So I started playing for the rugby team. Coincided with having a few decent players and did quite well. And the cricket-wise, two friends of mine, 
Eddie Pratt and Andy Davis lived 100 yards down the road from where we lived in Ealing. And they were going to the same school. So I said to them, well, where do you play cricket? So they said, no, we, we go down to Great Western Railway, a little club, you know. So I played in their second team, I think, at 13 and 14. And sort of midway through the 14 year I got, I played in their first team. And then we played, um, played a game against the local rivals, Brentham, who were a much better time and a much bigger club than ours. And they had an opening bowler named Brian Reed, who, who became a very, very good friend of mine, was on my benefit committee. Anyway, he came up to me after the game and said, look, if you want to get on in the game, you know, why don't you come down to Brentham? You know, we play in the Middlesex League. Their fixture list was much better, played all over North London. And then playing for Middlesex schools, I was upgraded to Middlesex Young Amateurs. I don't think they exist anymore, but they, they were a mixture of what I call jazz hats, you know, public school boys and the, the rest of us who sort of, you know, hung on their <laughs> shirt tails, you know, but actually worked out really well. So by the time I played a season for them, Middlesex was showing a bit of interest. And that's why I signed as soon as I finished at school, which was when I was 18, I signed to play for, well, I signed my first contract for two years, I think for 350 pounds a year. Yeah. So if your dad hadn't yeah. got that chauffeur job, then, I mean, your, your talent yeah. may have come through another school, but there probably, there wouldn't have been the same opportunities, maybe. No, no. no. I, I think, I, th- I personally think that it's a crucial turning point for the family, not just for, you know, not just for me. That takes us up to Middlesex. You made your debut, first class debut, 1969. Yeah. What, 19 then? So you're very young, weren't yes. you? Yes. Yeah. I think it was my f- second game. I'm not sure it was against Lancashire. The thing I remember about the Lancashire game was that it was difficult to see the wicket from the square. We played at Lords. It was three days of very ordinary weather. Uh, it was green as buggery. And they had Shuttleworth, Peter Lever and Ken Higgs. And it was a very low scoring match. I got the highest score. I mean, I didn't even get to 20, but I got the highest score. That was all I remember. I think I got bowled out in the last over of the day. I played on. I left. I went to leave it. And um, it bounced and hit my, my glove and dropped down and rolled onto the stumps. So we lost. So I can remember being quite upset about that. But that was, that was my first memory of first-class cricket. The year before, I spent quite a lot of time being 12th man because I was a bloody good fielder. So I travelled with the team a lot. The people that made a difference for me, Path was brilliant. You know, Path was uh, the captain then. Um, and he was the one who actually got me to stop playing cricket and to go to Loughborough in my second year. Because I realised two years of playing second team cricket I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was and and he said you know why don't you go get yourself a qualification get something behind you and then you can always come back and then you've got the choice you haven't got to worry similarly I then established quite a close relationship with Fred Titmus who wasn't everybody's character cup of tea he didn't suffer falls gladly but geez he was a bloody good cricketer and the bit of the joke, in my, particularly in my second year with Middlesex, was that I got the short straw, according to the rest of the team, of having to travel with Titmus in his car. <laughs> and they all took this out of me a bit. You know, No one else wanted to travel with him because he didn't stop talking. You know? <laughs> and, and for me, it was the direct opposite. You know, Having a blow-by-blow every match account of the uh, MCC tour to the West Indies when he got his toes cut off, he got sobered out twice. Mm. All of that stuff, I just lapped that up. But then your cricketing career was put on hold for a while, wasn't it? What happened next? What mm. happened was those, after those two years, I decided to go to Loughborough. That's where my rugby really took off. So the rugby that, was overtaking that, cricket at that point, was it? Well, I could only get a part-time contract from the time I finished at Loughborough at the end of June. 
I missed a lot of the season anyway. And the other thing was that I didn't have a lot of money and that part-time contract helped me pay for being at Loughborough. I was a little bit torn then. And we had a coach named Jim Greenwood, who was, if you do a bit of homework on Clive Woodward, you'll find out that Jim was Clive's hero. He was at Loughborough at the same time as me. And a lot of his coaching, uh, well, his interesting coaching and coaching ability came from Jim Greenwood. That rugby team, the 73 team, was a really good side. I think we had about six internationals, Scottish, Welsh and English. Fran Cotton, Steve Smith. Did the rugby help with your fielding or was that something you just worked a lot at? Don't ask me where I get hand-eye coordination. I was quick. I had pace. I didn't really know that until I went to Loughborough. We had a bloke named Robbie Brightwell. He got a, oh, I don't know, maybe a silver. And Packer was his wife. She won a gold. Okay. In, yeah, he was our athletics lecturer. So when we did the 100 metres, 200 and 400, you know, I realised, okay. Yeah, and also a determination to... I wanted to be as good as anybody on the cricket field, particularly fielding. Colin yeah. Bland was uh, quite a big influence. Every time he threw at the stumps, he hit them about eight out of ten from anywhere, you know. Well, let's move on to 1976, because that was an excellent season for you. Yeah. You were the leading run scorer for Middlesex, played a huge part in you winning the county championship that year, which is the first time since 1949. Oh, magic, yeah. When I look back now... I was very inexperienced then. I'd played a couple of games in 74. And then 75, I played in some one-dayers and championship matches. Um, And actually, I should never have played in 1976 because Middlesex had signed Larry Gomes to bat at three. And then just before the season started, just after we'd done pre-season, Gomes, he got picked for the West Indies team, touring. So there was a hole there. We went to Germany. As a, for a pre-season trip. It was bloody freezing yeah. and we played on the mat. But actually, as a team, funnily enough, in those days, we didn't do team building. You know, we didn't do, mm. you know, looking after your mates. We didn't do any of that. It was a bit of a change because Breers was in charge. He wanted to encourage a bit of team spirit. Magic year. I got a- Everything yeah, was got going it. right, wasn't it? Middlesex winning the, the county championship, but then you were called up for England uh, for the first time in that one-day series against the West Indies, weren't you? And that's right. started yeah. rather spectacularly for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, yeah. I suppose it was a bit of a highlight. It was sort of downhill from there on, you know. <laughs> Don't know about <laughs> that. Like, well, I, I think not as a player, but certainly from an international point of view, yeah. you know. But how did that feel to play international cricket for the first time? The experience for that first game... It was really unusual because it was at Scarborough and it, it was packed. I mean, it felt like there were about 30,000, but I think there was about 12. There was a lot of noise, you know. And I mean, I think it was Bosworth game and John Lever. Yeah, and I thought, obviously, I was a little bit worried about their bowling attack because they had Michael and Andy. I hadn't really, even that season, I think Keith Boyce for Essex bowled qu- really quick. But otherwise, I hadn't really experienced what you'd call express pace. So I was a little bit worried. But then I, I was batting at five. They put me at five and I thought, well, I'm home and dry here. You know, that's yeah. great. Because I knew Scarborough was not a quick wicket. So I thought, oh, good, I'll, I'll avoid the new ball, right? And I think it was 20 minutes and I was walking to the crease and we were 15 for three. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it was quite frightening, actually. Yeah, I bet. It, really was. it wasn't something that I had to deal with for. Quite an experience, yeah. Baptism of fire, isn't it, for your first match? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you mentioned both of them, so that was his first match as, as well. What, what do you remember yeah. about him in, in those early days? Was it obvious he was going to go on to be a big star or was he just part of the team? At yeah, that oh, 
Yeah, well, I got to know, while I was at Middlesex, Both was on the MCC ground staff for a while. So mm. we saw quite a lot of each other. What sticks out with me is he had a lot more confidence than everybody else. Whenever you talk to him, he, he always gave you the impression, you know, that you've got to be careful because I'm going to get you out. He had that absolute belief in his own ability, you know, yeah. which, of course, showed in his career. I mean, the, you know, the longer he played, the better he got, basically. Very, very impressive. Tony Gregg was your captain. What, what was he like to play for? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Mm. Greggy had the ability to make you feel you were a good player and make us feel we were a good team. When we were in India, I tell you, he was, he was exceptional. Our performance there, when you look back, our performance there was, was unbelievable, you know, mm. to win the series 3-1. But he was brilliant. With the second test match, he was as sick as a dog. He batted for a day and a half. Sheer, sheer guts, you know, yeah. sheer guts and determination. And he was like that. He, and when things got tough, okay, he would just say, give me the ball. He could bowl anything. You know, he'd run up and bowl bounce. He'd run up and bowl swing. He'd bowl uh, off spinners. You know, he slipped the odd leggy in. Mm. He had that, what I would call charisma about him. Yeah, he was a good man too. Really good man. You mentioned India there. You, you played those three one-day internationals against the West Indies. Obviously scored that brilliant 80 not out in the first one. Did you then expect to be picked for that India tour or was that in the balance? No, I had no idea. No, I didn't expect to go on the, on the tour. And again, challenging conditions. You've started off playing against the West Indian quicks and then suddenly you're playing on Indian wickets, turning wickets. Yes. I mean, how was that? Difficult? Yeah, yeah that, I had a pretty good record against spinners. I wanted to dominate spin. I mean, they had three of them, but I mean, I never got the opportunity to show that. I got ill the first week when we went to Pune and then I played in Jaipur and Ahmedabad and I got hundreds in both games, only batted once and played really well. Then I got quite badly sick. From Ahmedabad, we went back to Delhi. They left me in Delhi while they went to play Central Zone or somewhere else. I didn't play in that game and I was actually in bed for a week, but there was about a 12-day window between that and the first test. So by the time I got out of that hospital, um, I was all right. You know, that's no excuse. But and that test was in Delhi. I got caught back pad. I was never caught back pad before that or after that to any spinners. But just one of those things, you know, the second test, I got runs in um, might have been Gohati. Gohati was a good one. It was just uh, the middle of nowhere. You know, right. in India in those days, they would either fly you or drive you or train you to the farthest place in the country. And it's a very big country to play your three-day game. Anyway, he went to go hearty. We, they dropped us at an airport somewhere and then we drove in a coach for hours and we got to this place. And it was like, we could see it in the distance. It was like a pimple on the hill. We stayed in a really basic hotel. Once we got there, we weren't going to have a net or anything because there weren't the facilities. So we decided to walk down to the ground. And it was about 500 yards down to the ground from the hotel we're staying at. And we got to the ground. They were like, oh, bloody hell. And it was just a dirt outfield with an embankment and one big shed on the right. And that, that was where you changed. That was the pavilion. So we thought, oh, God. And, and the place was deserted. It, it was very, it was a colourful, had lots of trees that were budding and flowers and everything. It was lovely looking. So the next morning when we got up, um, we went to breakfast and Kenny Barrington came in and said, right, oh, boys, once you've got your gear ready, we're going to get on the bus. So I said, well, what are we going to bus for? It's only 500 metres down the road. He said, no, no, we've got to get on the bus. Oh, okay. So, so we got to get, and we go outside 
and you cannot move for people where they came from. It took us 40 minutes to get from the hotel to the ground. I don't know how many there were. There were at least 15,000 people there. And the other thing was that there was, it might've been a rope around the ground before the embankment started. But once every day finished, then the crowd were beholden to come on to touch you. And when it was about 15,000, it was pretty, and I can remember clear as a bell, but Bob Willis saw them all flooding onto the pitch. He bowled the last over and he dashed to the stumps, pick up a stump and he said, follow me boys. He rushed off waving the stump in front of him and we were all behind him. <laughs> it, was, it was quite incredible. And then your next cricketing stop. The next stop was Sri Lanka. Oh, and Sri Lanka as well, wasn't there? After India, yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so we had, we had three months in India and then three and a half weeks in Sri Lanka. But then yes. you scored 100 in that match, didn't you? Yeah, it was very much a... I had something to prove. I mean, I love the tour. Uh, in India, but it becomes a bit hard work being 12th man or doing the cooking when you're up country. When we got to Sri Lanka, because it was uh, their first official test, or it was only a four day test, I think. So I thought, well, I've got to cash in here. I batted for seven, over seven hours for a hundred. And, and my goal was just to get three figures. You know, that was, at least it gave me a real chance of, of playing in Melbourne. Yes, I'm sure all eyes were on Melbourne and that centenary test. So it was time to say goodbye to Sri Lanka and say hello to Australia. And then, then we went to Perth. <laughs> you could not have gone anywhere more different. I can remember waking up there in Perth. We got there in the middle of the night, wake up in the morning. I drew the curtains and I thought, my God, I'm back in the land of the living. There was the Swan River running crystal blue and the streets were absolutely spotless you know and I thought my god the difference and then of course the wickets we played at the Wacker which at that point was definitely the quickest wicket in the world against Lily Wayne Clark and I think Mick Malone I'll tell you what that wasn't a bad attack oh and they had a leg spinner got me out Tony Mann so hugely different you know in those days I mean people don't realize at the Wacker the sight screens were inside the ground so they were about 40 yards wide so they covered pretty well covered the most of the square so they had these big wheels either side and Lily when he opened the bowling he used to kick start off one of the wheels and then run in this long semicircle <laughs> till he got to the wicket and it took ages so by yeah. the time he got there you know you were absolutely quaking you know it was like that was quite an experience I can tell you but you were certainly up for the challenge weren't you I got in against a second new ball. I thought I was safe batting at six. And of course I didn't. We, were, we got runs and we played quite well. I mean, we're four down. I remember when I got in. And he took the new ball after I, I, I hadn't faced the ball. And the first delivery I played half forward to and it whistled past my cap. And Marshy took it up, you know, jumped up high in the air and said, for goodness sake, then, or words to that effect, <laughs> don't bolt them at him and throw it to gully. You know, like, oh my God, you know, this is what you're going to get. Do you value that knock against Western Australia quite highly? Because as you said, you know, fastest track in the world against Dennis Lilly. I know it wasn't 100, but 60 yes. on that ground was superb. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, it was. Actually, it was, a, it was, <laughs> it was so different. It was the first time I'd encountered the idea what I didn't have to move my feet that much um, to be able to hit through the line 
but I, that was just the wicket. You could never play a forward defensive like you played in England. You know, you'd have, I don't know, three feet between front foot and back foot. You, you watch the Aussie players. I mean, even now, they limit their movement. You know, they don't commit themselves. You know, but that's something quite hard to get used to because when the ball swings in England, you know, I always felt that I needed to be half forward anyway. So, yeah, that was a bit of an experience. Yeah, so, yeah, very enjoyable, yeah. So you must have been feeling good after that warm-up match in Perth and it was full steam ahead to Melbourne. What happened next from your perspective? Uh, well, I was told I was going to play in the test match before we left Perth. Were you? What happened? Um, well, they, they, what, they decided to change the order. Dennis Amos was our best player by a mile in record and in performance in India. And, you know, he, he was in really good nick, done well. So, but Lily had a great record against him. So the thinking was, okay, why don't we move Dennis down to four, which meant that Breers had to have another opening bat. So I would have batted at six if I'd played. So that shuffled me out and they brought in Bob Warmer to open. Good old Bob, much though I love him. You know, he got gloved after about 15 minutes and didn't take any further part in the game. He had a broken finger. So then I had to field for two and a half days, you know, which I didn't mind, which I loved, actually. It was great. Packed house. Being part of a game, you know, which was a centenary test was, uh, I wanted to do the best that I could, you know, even though I wasn't playing. Yeah, so it was very enjoyable. Good. And the crowd give you a lot of a lot of uphill as well but you know most of the banter was quite good natured we got to know the bloke that runs the they've got a cell underneath one of the dressing rooms for the <laughs> real outrageous you know the blokes who get absolutely tanked up the locals and then you know start abusing and stuff and they the one guy who ran it was he didn't take any nonsense you know he went if there was a problem he just made sure that they saw the truncheon you know <laughs> yeah so was, yeah yeah little things like that that uh, yeah come back is there anything else that sticks in your mind from your time out in Australia? The thing I remember a lot about that was one, having a car accident, two, rooming with Derek Randall. So Arx was a, a different character. And in fact, we both went back to Australia to pro. He went to pro for Paran in Melbourne and I pro for St Kilda. Mm. And um, so we spent a bit of time together. And he's a great bloke, but he, he never quite knew to what to expect from him. When we got back to England, we played knots. He said, come, come round to my place. We have a drink. You have supper, you know, so, so. and I, I got round to his place and he opened the door and he had his pads on. <laughs> and he sat down at dinner with his pads on the whole time. <laughs> that type of guy, you know, but he was great value. He could see the funny side of anything. You know, someone tipping his hat at Dennis when Dennis was really giving him some verbal mm. going, oh, sorry, Mr. Lilly, he said. And so, I mean, you know, absolutely unique. But, I mean, again, that, that innings was an absolute blinder, one of the best that I've seen. It, it wasn't an easy wicket. It didn't have a lot of pace in it. And it was, quite, it was a bit uneven, and it got worse. I mean, scores reflect that. To score 170 against that attack, exceptional. Yeah, Brilliant. absolutely exceptional. But let's rewind a second. You mentioned a car crash. What happened there? Well, yeah, it, well, it wasn't exactly a car crash, but it was enough for the, the management team to take the car keys off me. We were given brand new Triumph 2.5 automatics to drive. So the keys went on the table. And once I knew I wasn't playing, I made sure I got hold of the bloody keys. You know? <laughs> we were on our way out. I think it's close to Flinders Street, but you go along Flinders Street and then you're allowed to do a right turn across the tram lines as there was a queue waiting on the left. So the tram line was on the right and we were going to turn right. So I waited and waited and 
eventually the car started to move, but it was very slow. And trams were coming the way we were going and coming the other way on the other side of the road. So I still think about, God, you know, how, how did this happen? Anyway, I waited and turned half right. And then the car in front of me stopped to let the tram coming the other way. By which time when I looked right, there was a tram coming my way, you know, coming the, the way that I was facing. And I thought, oh, well, he's going to stop. Well, <laughs> he put his brakes a long way away. But those trams, I'll tell you what, they are cute and they're very heavy. He slowed right down and down and down. And we sat there, you know, thinking, he's got to stop. He's got to stop. He must be stopping. And just before he stopped, he went boom into the front offside part of the bonnet. So it wasn't a major, but I obviously got a lot of stick. You know, and, and like quite enjoyable moments once you've got over the fact you haven't done any damage and, you know, no one's, uh, yeah, yeah. No one's been that, hurt, you know. I imagine there's a lot of dinners and hospitality around that game as well. Was it all a good fun off the there, pitch? Yeah, I mean, it was, there was a hell of a lot going on. I wish I'd taken, I was more obsessed with the game than I was with the occasion, but, you know, shaking hands with Bradman and, and meeting all of those legendary yeah. Australian and English players, you know, people that I'd never met before. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was magic. The time there was very well structured. The Aussies had organised the, the whole event mm -hmm. really well, you know. Yeah, so it's the first time I met the Queen as well. And yeah, I met her again at Lords, but there you go. But um, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was yeah, quite an occasion. She drove around the out, outfield in the the Bentley or the Rolls, whatever it was, you know, it was quite a, yeah, quite, yeah, it was a massive occasion. Then you've got World Series cricket looming as well. So what I'd like ah. to know is what did you know of it at that kind of point when you're in Australia and that kind of time coming back to England? Okay. Um, okay. I, I had a little in there through Goose, through Bob Willis. We stayed on after the tour finished and I stayed on for a week because John Lever and I had to fly to Joburg to play in a double wicket competition. I don't know how I got into that, but, you know, yeah. I said, yeah, trip to Africa. Yeah, great. Yeah, I'll go, you know. And so Bob and I stayed with Anne and Arthur Jackson. Now, Arthur was a sports remedial hypnotherapist who was very friendly with Bob and had actually given Bob some tapes to listen to, to sort of program himself. He did the same for me a couple of times. I, well, I didn't really have an, a lot of time there. We stayed with them. And on the Sunday, uh, they invited a few people around. Greggy had stayed on and he was one of them. And there was a bloke. I don't think it was. It wasn't Kerry Packer, but it was someone representing Kerry Packer who came for the barbecue. And they basically spoke about World Series cricket. This was about to happen and so and so. And to be honest, I thought, Blimey, this is a bit pie in the sky. You know, I mean, this, this, yeah. at that stage, I mean, I was quite naive. I'm not sure how Bob felt about it either. But I mean, we were aware of it. But we thought, well, you know, how, how it will take off, we're not sure. And then all of a sudden, by the time I got back to England from Joburg, it had broken in the press, you know, so. So no direct approach was made to you at any point or any, any of the other <clears> Middlesex <throat> No. Uh, not no not at that stage no, no. Would, you, would you have liked to have played in it would you have played in it if asked oh that's a very difficult question to answer actually I'm not sure that I would have yeah my uh, yeah uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I don't know I mean I might have yeah. okay if it had been 
huge amounts of money maybe i would have done but i don't know i yeah, yeah. It's difficult to say did you expect your middlesex captain to be england captain by the time the ashes came around when you were in australia <laughs> well actually well i think that might have been mentioned at the time and it was never official but greggy intimated that once this breaks then it could be the last time i'm i'm officially involved with uh, our test team and i think automatically we assume from that that the success that middlesex had had and you know in terms of captaincy he had a reputation for being able to handle the different personalities quite well although i'm not sure he ever quite got it right with philip edmonds but apart from phil a lot of people spoke about you know they mentioned both being hard to handle you know because he could do his own thing but that was never the case with Briers. i think they always had a lot of respect for each other you know and they were you know upfront and open and that worked very well aside from all that it's an ashes summer on your return to england so are you really yeah. focused at that point in getting into that test no. side and playing a few more no test matches? actually that was quite a bad time for me i was quite ill when i got home around about august um i was diagnosed with probably i'd been carrying glandular fever for a while but having said that i didn't feel like i had that i just didn't feel great if i'm really honest i should never have played in that first test match i can't remember i didn't get any runs in any competition until middlesex played the aussies i think i noticed you got 54 for the mc yeah that's it that's the only score that i got but i never felt like i was really well you know yeah. on top of it but after, and after that, it's, the season sort of went downhill a little bit. And I think probably psychologically, you know, I thought uh, my opportunity had probably gone. The, the season before had sort of buoyed me up a lot. Yeah, it seemed to be a, a, in the dim and distant past, you know, mm. for the rest of that season. So, Still a big moment to be selected, though. I mean, you must have been proud to, to be selected for an Ashes test. Well, I mean, I was at home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. having played... I played two tests in India. You know, mm. they made me open in the second one there because Kenny was well aware that I was I was quite nervous sitting around waiting purely because it was a test match. But I mean, I think in hindsight, um, I'm, I think I probably felt a lot of the time that I wasn't quite sure whether I was where I should be. You know, I wasn't quite sure whether I was quite good enough, even though I'd had a really good season. And I think certainly that was the case the next year. Did you think you should have been given another test after that first one? I know you didn't, you didn't score many runs, but do you think once you're in the team, you should be given a bit of a run to see what you can do? Um, well, I scored one and five, didn't I? I, think, mm. I don't think so. I mean, I, I was a bit surprised when I was left out because I didn't, I didn't find out until the public address announced it while we were warming up at Old Trafford. I hadn't been told. But, you know, that's... Uh, those sort of things happen, etc. you know, so, but no, I didn't have that conscious feeling, you know, that I should, I should still be in the team. You know, I mean, I didn't think anyone had the, um, their rights on it, but I suppose in, in looking in hindsight, maybe give me a run there. I don't know. It was another successful season for Middlesex though, wasn't it? The, you won the County Championship yeah. again, shared with Kent and you yeah. won the Gillette Cup as well that season. Yeah, we were a very good side. And we, and we continue to be a very good side. You know, we managed to, to stay at the top, really, for quite a long period of time. And probably a, a lot of that's probably due to Michael Brearley. He was very analytical, very, very good reader of a game and very formal. He wasn't a laugh-a-minute individual. And he would pick one or two players to run things by. He used Clive Bradley quite a lot when he was playing for Middlesex. Yeah, and not so much Mike Smith. And they were both sort of the same type of, type of era. 
we've all heard a lot about Brearley and how he manages both them and other players. Were there any kind of classic Brearley moments where you thought, oh, that, that really shines a light on his captaincy or the kind of guy he is? Well, I think the, <laughs> the day that we beat Surrey in a day, the game, it had rained for two days, I think. And when he walked in in the morning, he already had it in his mind. We all thought, well, easy day, you know, one day to go, there'll probably be a split the batting or something. You know, there was no conscious thought about getting points out of the game. Yeah. He came in in the morning. He said, right. He said, look, we're going to try and set up a win here. And everybody went quiet. You know, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, he was, he was spot on because the wicket obviously had been under covers for a couple of days. So, and it was low scoring. But, you know, we scraped to win right at the end of the day. You know, it was, yeah. And to keep on the Middlesex theme, it would be great to get your thoughts on Wilf Slack and the great partnership you formed with him during the 80s. And of course, then his, his tragic early death at the age of 34. Yeah, I, I, still, feel, yeah, I still feel quite sad about, you know, yeah. Slacky having gone so early. For a, someone who came from the Caribbean, he and, he and his sister came when they were about 13 and 14, I think. So they were very close. And it took me a long time to realise that actually he was a real gentleman. He was very religious. I think towards the end of my career, I sort of, I tended to listen to him and we'd have some pretty intense discussions about the, the more serious things of life. We roomed together. So we roomed together and we opened the batting. So it was always, yeah, it was always actually something to look forward to. You know, you could share everything with wealth. You know, he would take it on board, you know, and he would come up with something, you know, but he, he always used to take his time, didn't rush into anything. And he could play, certainly in terms of first cricket, he's one of the best players, a quick bowling that I saw. He used to play Sylvester Clark with a stick of rhubarb. It used mm. to drive me bonkers because I was all over the place, you know, and half the time I was waiting to get, to get hit on the helmet or somewhere, you know. And Slacky used to um, deal with it very well. There was one occasion when we played Gloucester. We won the toss at Bristol and we batted. And it wasn't a bad wicket, but they had Courtney Walsh at one end and Sid Lawrence at the other. And Sid opened the bowling. And I always used to take the first ball. Sid opened the bowling. And in the first over, he bowled seven wides. (laughs) And the last ball, it just clipped my helmet. And what he'd done, he'd gone one side, other side, short, full. But it was quick. You know, he, he steamed in. And I thought to myself, listen, no, I'll tell you this bloke is dangerous, you know, because he hasn't got a clue where it's going and I've got even less idea. So at the end of the over, I walked down. (laughs) I said, Slacky, look, mate, I'll take Courtney, all right? He's a test bowler. I'll take Courtney. You take Sid. (laughs) So so he said, yeah, okay, it's all right. You know, like... And then he had these these blackouts, didn't he, when he was playing? How difficult was that to see? And how often did that happen? Well, actually... To be honest, I think the first time it happened, I'd stopped playing. Um, I heard about it. I went straight to South Africa. That, the season that I stopped playing when I didn't play, I played for about a month, I think. As far as I remember, I don't think there had been any sort of incident. But as soon as I'd stopped, it was either later that season or beginning of the next. And it's another, another regret I have in my old age that for a number of personalities or people that I played with, I didn't go out of my way like I should have done to keep in touch with them. And, and that's quite, uh, yeah, 
you know, so, and Slacky was certainly one of them because he's probably the one that I was closest to, you know. I mean, he, he came around the day before we left, brought us a present and, you know, everything just to, but a, a real gentleman. He would always think the best of anybody, you know, that he came across. Yeah, a really sad story, but that's lovely to hear your memories of, Wilf. Um, returning to the cricket. England, um, did you ever think you might be recalled? I'm, I'm thinking of 83 kind of time, you know, you scored... 1,519 runs with 400s. You're in pretty good nick. Did you ever think, oh, I might get another chance here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. What about 85? When did I get the 600s in seven games? Was that 85? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I thought then I would have an outside an outside chance, you know, because, you know, I, I remember Embers told me, Embers was playing test cricket at the time and he's, you know, he said, fuck at me, he said, every time we turn the telly on, you know, different game, you've got another hundred. That, I, I just remember that, you know, but uh, I suppose it, it, it entered my mind then. Yeah. And so 1985, was that your last full season? Yes. I'd begun to feel that I didn't, apart from opening the batting, I didn't really fit. Uh, I think I was changing quite a bit. I mean, <laughs> I had a bit of a back problem. I had an auntie who who did a bit of my auntie Josie uh, lived in, uh, in where we came from, New Romney. She did quite a bit of healing in her middle age. She used to give me some healing treatment when I went down to see them. I, that was one place that I always went. Whenever we had a break in the season, I always went down to New Romney. And Dungeness for me is probably the, the place where I'd like my ashes scattered if anyone can, can get there through COVID. <laughs> it's the largest land mass of shingle in the world, apart from Cape Canaveral. It actually houses a, a power station, but the rest of it is just flat with tarred fishermen's cottages built on the shingle with thin cement roads all the way through it. And it has, it's got two lighthouses. There's no silence there because with the channel being there, you hear the stones rush in and rush back and it. The sound it makes is a, it's a sort of a whoosh and a crash. It's always been a quite a special place for me. I suppose you could call it, in, in some way, you could maybe call it a spiritual sort of place. So I always used to go back there. So, you know, Josie's um, healing sort of, sort of fitted with it at that stage. You know, so. Are you, are you yeah. quite spiritual now? You, you, you talk... Uh, I'm very... Uh, I, <laughs> I think I'm a very different person from when I play cricket, thank <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. I'm a very big fan of Carl Jung. I... I you know, I've read a lot of Jung and Joseph Campbell, particularly. Yeah, and my read, I read a lot. One of the reasons why I became an English teacher when I was playing cricket. But I'm very much into the novel area where people have overcome setbacks of whatever sort, post-traumatic stress stuff and alcoholism. And my wife deals in kids with learning difficulties, you know, so autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, all those type of things, you know. Yeah. And maybe throw a bit of crime in and then I'm sold on it, you know. Yeah. I'll, I'll be entertained. <laughs> yeah. I can only say thank you again for your time and your superb memories. Thanks very much, Graham. Excellent. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Graham Barlow, everyone. A big thank you to him again for speaking to me from Australia. Thoroughly enjoyable company. And I hope you enjoyed hearing about his fascinating journey from those humble origins in Stockwell to the Sunshine Coast in Australia with the odd car crash along the way. There simply wasn't the time and space to include all of Graham's stories and anecdotes, so I'll share some of these clips on the website, 
onceuponatime in theashes.com and on Twitter at onceashes. There's plenty more about his Middlesex teammates, including Wayne Daniel, Mike Selvey, Simon Hughes and Alan Jones, plus more on his time playing in Australia for St Kilda. Mick Malone is just getting into his run-up and he will join us on the next episode for the Australian take on 1977 and World Series cricket. Another episode not to be missed. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs>